Hamish, you're a pro. <laughs> All right. I see a late night show in your future. Uh, uh, <laughs> Very late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hello, and thank you for joining the IPG Media Lab from each of our respective homes. I am your host, Scott Elchison, and this episode was recorded on Wednesday, May 13th, 2020. Adam, welcome back to the news this week. How have you been? Good, good. Glad to be here. Love the news. It's, I mean, listen, what else would we want to be talking about? Um, and can you believe Memorial Day is coming up? I know. It's, uh, it's kind of surreal. Uh, the passage of time seems to be both endless and also incredibly quick. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about time being broken by algorithms earlier uh, this year, and uh, now it's just just broken by being in the same place at the same time all the yeah. time. <laughs> now it's just broken by quarantine, totally. Uh, so this week, we have a very special announcement in our uh, interview section. Uh, it's the launch of a new product. So our very own uh, Hamish Kinningberg fires up Zoom for a conversation with Tara Connington, the SVP of analytics and insights, as well as Josh Bach, the EVP of Decision Sciences, uh, to discuss this new product, uh, how it works, and really how it can help our brands and marketers. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but with that, Adam, let's just dive into this week's news. Uh, and I think the first thing we have here is an update from a piece of news that I said last week. Uh, so for all those that remember Reddit, they announced their new Just Chatting feature, backpedaled on that announcement almost immediately after we launched the podcast last week. Uh, basically, what happened was that it was rolled out too fast, uh, and, and they didn't have a proper moderation in place for all these uh, different subreddits that were out there. So they have rolled it back uh, and are kind of rethinking that moderation process, and will hopefully bring that back to market. I think that's still okay. You know, this is a time where we're going to live and learn, uh, and it's a good time to experiment just given the situation that we're in. Yeah, I, I would say it actually shows some real courage on Reddit's part to remove a feature that they had rolled out and admit that they did something wrong uh, without thinking it through. We don't often see that from these these big tech platforms. Uh, you know, the we need more of that. Yeah, it's it's the the Facebook uh, move fast and break things motto. Uh, you know, still pervades a lot of Silicon Valley, and uh, you know, I think it's it's good to admit that that. Obviously, in an ideal world, they would have thought it through and prepared a little more in advance. But they were trying to get new tools out there for uh, for people who are quarantined at home, and it's a, it's a good time to launch mm -hmm. those things to help support people. And they they moved too fast, and they broke something. And it's it's cool that they they you know admitted that and rolled it back, and are are listening to that user feedback. Absolutely. So Reddit, good job. Yeah, there was another um, uh, product launch that actually uh, I think will stick uh, that was launched this week. Uh, that well, Spotify... there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Still time there's, always... Back, there, but... there's always time to roll something back. But uh, this one does seem like it was a little more uh, considered in terms of uh, how mm. it might be. I, I don't know actually how it would be used for uh, for negative for for. for negative purposes. Um, but um, Spotify rolled out uh, a feature called Group Session, um, which basically lets you co-listen to Spotify playlists uh, with your friends, um, which is uh, really cool because obviously while we're all uh, quarantined at home, it's good to have uh, media experiences with our friends in the same way that we would uh, you know, put on an album uh, when our friends were, were coming over or we're just hanging out and we want to share some music with them. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an awesome release. And I think you know, we've been, we've been mm -hmm. thinking 
thinking here at the lab, we've been thinking about co-viewing of video experiences for, for a while, certainly uh, on the lookout for that in uh, while we're all here in quarantine, it would be an awesome time to see some some of those features rolled out. Um, but this is a, an interesting first step and something that I don't think anybody really saw coming from Spotify. Co-viewing, co-listening, like the shared experiences uh, and how they come about digitally is the biggest question and a great place for everybody to be thinking and playing and building products. So uh, I think that's going to be like to your point, just a new uh, consumer behavior, a new option that is going to be out there in the coming weeks and months that we're going to be kind of figuring out. Does group session work for podcasts? Could we be co-listening to Floor 9? Is that a thing that we should encourage people to do? I think we should. I think we should figure that one out, actually. That is going to be my weekend experiment. Uh, so, Adam, I'm going to give you a call this weekend, and let's see if we can't uh, you know, co-view this, th- this week's episode. It'll be very meta of us. Uh, in other news, uh, up north, uh, Sidewalk Labs has shut down their Toronto project. Uh, for all of those that don't know, uh, Google has been in conversation uh, with the waterfront uh, at Toronto uh, to really build this smart city uh, out there is the best way to describe it. It was kind of like a, a test of what a smart city could be. But just given the pandemic uh, and the conversations to actually uh, have this project go forward and start the building uh, it was delayed. Uh, and then just given the economic uncertainty, Alphabet decided to pull the project uh, after all these setbacks. So yeah, I, th- this was kind of a controversial project. Uh, everybody had really been looking at it as a, a model, as you said, to, to what smart cities of the future might look like. But there had been a lot of pushback uh, locally from residents in, in Toronto, even a global audience of, uh, of folks who were, I think, justifiably had some concerns about the privacy implications uh, of some of the technologies right. that they had planned on deploying. So, you know, I, I think that that there is, it's a good moment for, for them to, to st- step back as we've seen with a lot of other uh, platforms uh, the 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 pandemic is a good excuse for them to uh, step back and say uh, maybe we're not going to do this project after all and to I'm sure they will come forward again with a, a new proposal down the line but it, it gives them an excuse and some ground cover to say uh, maybe this isn't going to work out and we're not going to do this absolutely well in other news what's going on with Hamilton yeah so uh, something that came out yesterday is that um, Disney plus uh, will be uh, releasing a filmed version of the stage production of the musical Hamilton um, on July 3rd. Um, so they, they actually bumped this release up an entire year. Uh, it originally wasn't supposed to, it was going to be released in theaters sometime in the summer of 2021, uh, but they moved it. Obviously, theaters aren't open right now, um, but more importantly, the, uh, the live productions of Hamilton are not uh, obviously being performed right now. And that was really why there was such a lag in the production of this content and the release of it. They were trying to protect those ticket sales for uh, for the, the Broadway production, but more importantly, the touring productions that were still making their way around the country. Um, so, you know, Disney bumped that up uh, because obviously there, there's nothing to be lost in terms of ticket sales to live events at this point. Um, and uh, it gives them uh, more content on Disney Plus, which Disney Plus has been doing great because parents, uh, you know, have really turned to Disney Plus as a, an outlet for their kids who are stuck at home uh, during quarantine. Uh, but, uh, you know, ha- Hamilton has a little bit of a different uh, audience base than a lot of the other content on Disney Plus. So I think this will even just broaden their audience and their accelerate signups for the service. Totally. Would you contribute this to like our, you know, our previous episodes where we talked about, you know, breaking windowing? Like, does this fall into that category at all or not so much considering it's a tape performance of like a live <laughs> event? 
I mean, I think it does because they did plan on releasing it in theaters uh, originally, but it's a lot. Okay. Um, it's a lot less of a a threat, let's say, um, to the theatrical experience because I don't think right. that that uh, it, because it was coming out so far down the line that I, I don't think that theaters are. It, it's I'm sure the CEO of AMC would have some uh, some harsh words for it, but I don't think that it's uh, really that much of a threat to theaters. Um, it kind of always, I think, would have made more sense on Disney+. Plus. I don't think it was going to drive dramatic revenues in, in theaters. Right. One well, thing that I think... I think is worth pointing out is that um, it, some people are questioning whether you know Disney will start to release more filmed content uh, from their their stage productions. You know they have uh, the Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Hercules. There's a ton of like Disney content that they move to the stage, um, and I, I think that that's an interesting idea, but probably is unlikely to happen because a lot of uh, a lot of that content is not. Film is filmed for archival purposes, but is not produced in a way that would make it sort of pleasing to watch on your television at home. So, uh, you know, I think there there is is some market for that going forward. But and I think a lot of uh, Broadway shows will be filmed for TV going forward, just in case. Um, but I don't think that this is a sudden pivot in in content strategy really for Disney Plus. Well said, Adam. That is going to wrap up the news for for this week. Up next, we've got a conversation with Hamish and the team here at UM uh, that is responsible for the new product we have called the Demand Forecaster. Uh, and so with that, I'll let the team just dive right in. So Hamish, take it away. Okay, thank you, Scott. So as as some of you may have seen, we picked up some press this week in the Times and in the Financial Times on a project we are working on called the Demand Forecaster. And so I'm delighted to be joined today by some of the key folks behind that project, as well as some of, some of my favorite folks in the agency. So we have Tara Connington Murphy, who is the very much the, mod, the, the mother of the demand forecaster, Hugh Griffiths, who is our chief product officer, and Josh Bock, who is um, head of our decision sciences. Uh, it's a project which obviously involves many people inside the agency and so we just wanted to spend some time today um exploring it so let's get started so tara i wonder if you could start this conversation off by just telling us a little bit about the demand forecaster sure very early on we started looking at some global search data you know search data really was like a real a, a very natural proxy to kind of look at and when we started looking at that data, we saw some very clear signals. So from there, we just really kind of got this idea of, you know, hey, we can, uh, there's a real opportunity here to mine this global data um, within, you know, a, a modeling uh, framework to um, help understand the situation and use the variation from the countries that were a little bit further along um, to help us quantify and predict uh, for the, the countries that were sort of just starting out this, this journey. Can you just give us a sense of how many markets and categories it covers, Tara? Sure. So it, um, it covers 15 markets globally, and we wanted to include a variety of markets that were obviously priority markets for our clients, but also markets that were pre, mid, and post-peak for the virus and, and recovery. And I believe we're covering at least 10 categories and some, maybe a few more. It seems to grow every day. Talk, let's talk a little bit about the predictive part of it. So 
I understand that we were able to model different factors against search demand, but with COVID itself being so unpredictable, how do you even start thinking about building a model that could be predictive of consumer demand at a time like this? Sure. So there's really kind of like two components of that. So uh, first and foremost, I will say that our aim here was not to actually predict the virus itself. So we're not epidemiologists. So that obviously could be a full-time job to predict the virus. What we really um, focused on was leveraging the best of the academic research out there on the virus to help us understand its its, evo- its evolution. But we really wanted to focus on the consumer demand aspect of it. The reason why we kind of chose machine learning is because machine learning is in itself something, a a model that will, as it's updated over time, will get smarter and will start to control for a lot of the variability and sort of the unpredicted things, the things that are not forecastable, and over time will become tighter and just better at forecasting the future. Um, So I think that, so that sort of, you know, played a big part in why we actually selected the, uh, the model that we did. So talk a bit more about that, because that's fascinating. So just so I understand, essentially, you are modeling many, many, many different variables in all these different markets across all these categories. So when things like a flare up in a certain state or something or a certain country, are you saying the model learns from that and then is able to kind of add in all these extra factors as it goes? Is that how it works? Yeah, So and th- that's um, absolutely how it works. So to take a step back, in terms of the um, <clears throat> like the variables that we included in the model, we cr- we included um, a variety of structural factors that help the model to distinguishes differences or control for differences across countries. And then we also included a bunch of dynamic factors, so factors we know that are um, more likely to change over time and have more variability. So the idea is, again, is like every time that, that model, the model gets updated and it starts to see a change or like an uptick in some of those variables in some countries, if they see that similar uptick happening in other countries, then the model will automatically start to, um, you know, course correct for those predictions and um, to kind of take those signals and change its forecasts um, accordingly. I, I think that's super interesting. and so. Talk about how we're forecasting. So how far out are our forecasts right now? And then what is the frequency of, of our forecasting? So there are there's lots of different variables, as Tara mentioned, that go into these forecasts. A lot of the things like the epidemiological forecasts are updated fairly frequently by the data sources that we are pulling that information from. Um, so we're actually updating these forecasts on a weekly basis. So each week we get in new data from those underlying sources. It goes into the machine learning, and it essentially, to the point that Tara was making before, it learns and refines the forecasts based on the new variation in those variables that it's seeing in the new week's worth of data. So the models are updating the forecasts every week, and we're certainly planning on uh, reforecasting these uh, every week for the foreseeable future. Cool. And I can um, just explain a little bit how the forecasting um, is done. So... We have the demand models that are sort of our, our main focus, and those are built by category. And in terms of how we're actually forecasting into the future, um, you know, we are leveraging epidemiological uh, forecasts 
looking at things like IHME um, and other sort of models for that, that, you know, are sort of um, validated by the CDC and using that as one input. But then uh, we need basically some forecasts for all the variables that are within the model. So the team is basically uh, running some sub models to forecast out some of the macroeconomic factors, you know, into the future, you know, which obviously have some variability, but are you are leveraging um, sort of the the best, um, you know, Euromonitor and some of the other sources out there to sort of guide that. So essentially, both of those things are are things that we put into um, sort of the the forecast simulation to basically get the the week on week trend for the for the next uh, couple of months. Sounds, that sounds amazing. So in terms of findings, let's get into that. So what have we found in terms of insights and forecasts? Yes, I, yeah, I can share some of what we've seen. I think it's interesting in when you look across different categories. I think we had selected categories that are, we hypothesized would see a range of impact from COVID. Um, there were some categories that we knew would be hurt significantly and there were some categories where we hypothesized that they would actually see some increase in consumer demand in response to the virus and that's actually what we've seen i think the interesting thing is the different shapes and the different patterns that we're seeing across categories so for example there are uh, three or four categories that we picked that have seen strong positive impact since COVID hit in terms of demand. The the biggest, and some of these would be not surprising to you, but the biggest uh, increases that we saw were around food delivery, for example. When the virus uh, kicked in, we saw an immediate doubling in the uh, demand around food delivery in both the UK and the US. So consumer demand almost doubling overnight. And it's remained relatively stable uh, since then, although it has declined a little. It's, it's stabilizing in both the UK and the US at about a 50% increase over pre-COVID levels. So it initially doubled, and then it's fallen back to uh, about 50 to 60% higher than it was pre-COVID. And then there are categories that have just had very strong negative impact and no positive movements yet. So things like live events, immediate 50% are halving in the amount of demand that people were searching for um, live events. And that's flat and has not moved. And it stayed uh, pretty negative ever since. Um, Travel, uh, still one that was struggling to see any real signs of recovery at this point. Um, Dining is another one where we're starting to see some recovery in certain markets around the the world, but largely speaking, those are still markets, or sorry, still a category that's relatively suppressed and stable at those lower levels. So it it really does depend category by category. We're seeing some that have seen sustained positive impacts, some have seen positive impact initially that then fallen off. We've seen a negative impact initially, but then some return, and some that have seen sustained negative impact. And so I think it's worthwhile, as, as we think about these findings, to talk about is consumer demand levels that we are that we are forecasting. We're not forecasting anything on the on the supply side or on the actual sales, but more just in terms of levels of demand that we're seeing in these different categories. So I think that's fascinating, Hugh. I think especially the fact that we can look at categories that you know did see an increase in demand and then 
help them to manage poten- a potential decrease in the future as well as categories that have been impacted and how we can help them to to come back. Of all the categories you shared, are there were there any that you found particularly surprising um, in terms of in terms of what we found? What we found. I think I was initially shocked by the automotive forecasts. I had hypothesized, and I think we all had, that the the the, the negative impact on demand would have been more substantial and more sustained than we were seeing, especially in the U.S. Um, we really th- th- there was a strong decrease in demand initially. But it really did start to, to to trickle back up. And the fact that by the end of May in the US, we're, we're seeing or, or forecasting demand levels at around 80 to 90 percent of what we were seeing pre-COVID, to me, is a very surprising and strong recovery uh, in that particular category, in that particular market. That's probably the one that that um, stood out to me the most. Thank you. That's amazing. And so let's um, switch gears now and talk a little bit about how demand forecaster can be used. Tara, I know uh, you work closely with a client in the travel and dining sectors. And so can you talk a little bit about um, how you're thinking about using demand forecaster with them? So the demand forecaster is able to give them a timeline of when they should plan to sort of ramp spending back up again. So what is the optimal timing and also sort of what is that optimal level of spend uh, to plan for? And, you know, for some of the businesses that kind of dabble in a few different industries, it's also giving them a guideline of, you know, what uh, messages they should prioritize, um, you know, based on, on, on the timing and also the market. And in certain cases, we are sort of leveraging the model um, for business forecasts. Uh, so helping clients to understand, you know, depending on how demand returns and the rate of, of, of that, you know, what will they expect um, from a volume or revenue standpoint for the full year? That's one of that's actually been one of the bigger surprises is that as we started socializing some of this with our clients, they are talking about <clears throat> leveraging it for business forecasts, so like revenue forecasts, uh, but also in helping them to redefine their their product roadmap. So you know things like benefits and offers, but also if they should kind of come up with new things to meet um, the changing consumer demand. So I think that that's been um, very cool as well. Amazing. And then, so Josh, um, how how do you, with all this wealth of data, with all these models by categories and by countries, and I, I know the next phase is actually to start building this out on a state by state basis for for the U.S. With all of this modeling data coming in, how do you you know start thinking about? organizing this and using this um, as a way for clients to activate some of this stuff through media? Sure. So the the first step that we're taking is um, all of the feeds, all of the data that's being used to run the model. We're, we're establishing automated feedback loop that's bringing in the data into a central repository where the models are being run and we're giving access to our internal teams and, and clients to views of how the uh, predictions are scaling out um, and also what are some of the, the contributing factors to the, the prediction. So geo is obviously a, a very big area that we would want to focus on in the U.S., but there are other aspects that are coming in, um, things like audience composition, 
um, that you might want to use to further contextualize how you buy. So using different audience overlays um, in combination with Geo to focus on uh, truly that audience that is spurring demand versus going too broad. One of the other aspects that that we look at is um, what does the, the demand curve look like relative to what uh, pricing uh, efficiencies look like? There's quite a bit of uh, softness right now in the marketplace around CPM pricing uh, because there's an influx of uh, folks uh, navigating towards their phones, uh, connected TV, um, but we see that the advertisers are are pulling back, which is having this almost multiplier effect of there's all this supply, but such such low demand. Part of what we're also looking at is how do we balance that that softness of of the the CPM relative to where that demand is is upticking, um, and making sure that we're um, taking advantage of certain channels based off of their nuances, but also taking advantage of them based off of where that uh, that extra softness is coming from. Um, so being able to double down on on CTV efforts, which uh, historically have had such a high premium, that now are seeing uh, double digit deflations in cost. That's super interesting. And one, that, I mean, of course, the the amazing power of the demand forecaster is is in that forecasting part of it and so are you how how are you thinking about advising clients in terms of you know strategies to help utilize that insight and kind of get ahead of the competition if that makes sense yeah so it's 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 not uh, having a, a forecast is great, uh, but not understanding how to activate on it is, is definitely a, uh, a an, an issue that we've uh, put forth an effort to solve. So with with the forecaster um, is a playbook um, that we've developed on basically what marketers should do, uh, depending on where they are in terms of that forecast curve, whether they're on the downslope, kind of the, the apex um, or uh, the, the upslope. Um, so thinking about how do you balance certain types of messaging efforts, um, not necessarily turning media completely off. So making sure that we have certain types of messaging that is contextually relevant given the times um, as that slope goes down, and then mixing in new messaging as that demand curve goes back up. So still having that equity messaging to create that relevance, but also starting to cycle in um, certain uh, addressable cues based off of um, where that individual is to capitalize on that demand at a, at a local level. So, so how would you advise a client to get involved? If this, if this is something which is interesting, what are the steps a client needs to take to start to explore the potential of this for their business? So I think, Hamish, the, the best thing to do is for them to reach out to their client business partner. Uh, all of our client business partners have access to this data and these models. And so they can work closely with them to figure out the right format and way for them to share this information and how to use it. So exciting. So let's talk a little bit, let's talk a little bit about the future and about our forecasts for Demand Forecaster. What, what's on the roadmap next? And I'll ask two questions. One, what's on the roadmap in the short term? And is this just a COVID um, particular exercise or do you think it has legs beyond COVID when things hopefully turn more back to a normal state of affairs? I, th I think it's interesting because if you think about what we've been talking about, um, 
which is linking a media activation playbook to fluctuations in demand. I mean, we're doing it now at an accelerated rate because of COVID and because of the massive fluctuations that in demand that have been caused by that. But the concept of having an, an activation playbook directly linked to fluctuations in consumer demand isn't a COVID-related concept. So I, I think one of the things that we're thinking about is, yes, this has been created and, and accelerated because of the situation that we're in, but the concept of having models that are always on, measuring and predicting demand and how that fluctuates over time across multiple categories and across multiple countries, that could actually be a piece of always-on intelligence that links to a demand generation engine, for example, um, with predetermined business rules and activation principles so that this could just become the way that we do always-on demand generation media in the future. And I think that the, the idea of how do we get from where we are now to that state is what we are turning our attention to right now. Awesome. So that was great to spend some time with you guys talking about this. Thanks so much for spending time with us, Tara, Josh, and Hugh. And back to you, Scott. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Floor 9. So remember, this Friday from 2 to 3p on Twitch, you can catch the IPG Media Labs partnership team talking to Holly from Shoppable, a social commerce company that is enabling commerce on social platforms. Uh, so come join us for like that great conversation, and we'll see you all next week. So thank you, and talk soon. Thank you.